Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrades. Wow, to tell you the truth, I have no idea where to go with this episode. I wish I would be able to just calmly move on with Stalin series right now. I love to do hardcore research on those, but the crazy things that just keep happening now in Russia and all around Russia are mind-bogglingly weird. We've got a massive shooting in Kerch. That's in Crimea. We have Putin's new speech. We have the autocephaly of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the disporting schism between Moscow Patriarchate and the Constantinople that has followed. And seriously, if you know a thing or two about how Russia works now and how much it has inherited from the Soviet Union, I'd be kind of worried by this point, especially if you live in Belarus. There's a lot to unpack here. And to be honest, it's all very important, kind of scary even. About the shootings, this is my gathering of facts, which I've picked up from Russian Times, Lentaru, Medusa, all that stuff. They all published interviews. And then we'll go into a bit of analysis, because what happened was that on October 17th, at about 12 in noon, an 18-year-old student at Kirch Polytechnic College in eastern Crimea detonated a homemade bomb in the school's lunchroom. And the student, Vladislav Roslyakov, yeah, apparently he then roamed the building, shooting everyone he could from um, a legally purchased shotgun uh, that was made in Turkey. Roslyakov murdered 19 people and injured other 48 before, well, killing himself. According to eyewitnesses, and there's a lot of studies of those folks, on October 17th, Wednesday, the bell rang like usual after the second period ended. This was at about 11.40 a.m., obviously, and six minutes later, there was an explosion in the school's lunchroom. Recalls of a student here, quote, I'd gotten down to the lunchroom for some bread, and suddenly there was this extremely loud blast. Everyone was terrified, they ducked down, and people were screaming and crying. I burned my back and my arm. 30 seconds later, I heard something else blow up, and I ran out into the courtyard. Anna and Yelena, also students at the school, say that they remember smoking in the courtyard when they heard the first pops. They say they thought, quote, someone was playing around, but uh, then they saw, apparently, boys running out covered in blood. And yeah, approximately well without any plan, they ran out for the fence, jumped it, and ran as far as their legs would take them. Yelena Olushinska, an instructor at the school, was on the first floor when the bomb went off. 
When she heard it, she says she first mistook the sound for a firecracker or maybe even a small earthquake, and she immediately ran outside. When she got to the courtyard, Olyushkina saw a young woman lying unconscious on the ground. She says she started giving her CPR, but soon realized that the girl was dead. At this time, several new pops sounded from the building and glass started raining down. Together with a colleague, Olyushkina managed to carry an injured young man outside. Quote, I asked him what he saw. All he said was, they're shooting. Then I asked him how it all started. He answered, but I can't say what he said because it might hurt the investigation. And this is a report from uh, Madusa. Sergei, a student at the college, says he had hid from the explosions in the corner of the building on the second floor. When the blast stopped, he says he spent a few minutes gathering himself together. Quote, I exhaled and ran like hell for the stairwell. By this time, there were already bodies all over the floor. I ran over somebody's arm. Then I froze. The guy running right in front of me, literally just a hip ahead, was killed. He just collapsed in an instant. My legs almost gave way, and I was literally running down the stairs on my knees. Sergei thinks he only survived because the killer ran out of ammunition. He says he never saw who was shooting. Quote, I was so terrified that I lost all peripheral vision, end quote. Olga Galborg, a first-year student, says she didn't know Rostlyakov, but later she recognized him immediately from the surveillance footage. That morning, when I was entering the building, he was a step away from me, and we brushed against each other. The young woman spoke to the media. I'm in a mental note, because his hair was this unnatural white, gray color. He dyed it. He probably did it just the day before, because I never noticed a guy with hair like that at our college before. That morning, I just thought to myself, hmm, just some fool, I guess. And that's all over the place, all these real stories, which my show's all about, as you know. But yeah, the students, basically they state that Rostlikov was in the building, killing people straight up for about 30 minutes. Quote, This girl in my class fell on the stairs, and literally a second later, a bullet hit the wall right above her head. Rostlikov was just roaming the hallway, shooting people in the legs and the gut, and killing some people at point blank. Yeah, that's another report from a student. Her name's Anastasia. Asked when the police finally arrived, students' answers diverge. Some say officers got there within five minutes, while others say it took about 20. The nearest police station is just across the street from the college, about 330 meters away. Eyewitnesses can't say how police responded, because they ran from the building before they arrived. Nevertheless, rumors have circulated through the city that the massacre didn't happen like it's been explained in the official reports. Elena, who was on campus on Wednesday, says, quote, One person wearing a mask was shooting from the left, another person was fighting from the right, and Rostlikov was walking in the hallway, shooting. A lot of people say that the shots came from different directions, while others claim there was a simultaneous gunfire in different wings of the building. Some people even say the killer had an armed accomplice on the roof of the neighboring building. Well, none of this has been verified, however, and, you know, we have no reason to think that they're true, except that we do, and I'll get to those later, and, um... It made me think a bit about all of this Russia's involvement in previous acts of terrorism and why would they do that, because at this point, if you've learned about the Razan bombings and you've listened to my 1999 bombings episode where I just go through all the acts of terrorism and how they've been used, by this point, I think Putin's government really do have to explain that they're not involved in this rather than anything else. And it's a it's a sad tale for me to tell you guys, but... um. I really just want to understand that how horrid uh, this is when a lone shooter theory is the best that we have. This lone shooter thing could actually be the best of all possible scenarios here. Because other options are way more scarier since we know that such acts of terrorism, well, I call it terrorism, but um, we'll get to that later on as well. I just think that I don't want them to be used as reasons for some small wars. Students say virtually no one knew anything about Roslikov. Sometimes I'd see him on the campus, but it's hard to describe a person like that, a student Marina says. 
Quote, he dressed in jeans and t-shirts and didn't talk to anyone. In 40 years, he didn't make a single friend. He was always alone. Someone in his cohort said he almost never spoke to him in 40 years of classes together. But he remembers how, in junior year, Rostlokov once told him that he would gladly gun down everyone at the school, another student Vladimir reports. But naturally, he didn't think anything of this. How are we supposed to know what was in his head? He never said a word. So his classmates say he used to say, quote, I'd blow up the whole school if I had my way. Well, who among us hasn't said something like that? Says Sergei, one of Vladimir's classmates. See, until Wednesday, most of the students, at least, who spoke to Lentaru and Medusa and RT, they even asked the same question, have you heard of the Columbine massacre in the States? And they hadn't. But, obviously, according to Roslikov's profile on social media, yeah, he was a huge fan of the Columbine massacre. Just stating. Sergei Ksionov, the head of Crimea's regional government, announced on October 18th that he's certain that Roslikov could not have organized the school massacre on his own. This theory was apparently popular among the mourners who came to the memorial at the college. Quote, His mother is a nurse at an oncology center. She's divorced from the father. They live in a rented apartment and the kid didn't have a job anywhere. So where did he get the 30 to 40,000 rubles, which is about $540 for the gun, said one student's mother questioningly. How did he learn how to use all this stuff? And how did he manage to plan everything so carefully? It's obvious that somebody helped him with this. Maybe, for example, to destabilize the situation in Russia. And that's kind of the mood. That's kind of the mood, and this is where I move off to my uh, scripted part, because, well, I've been listening to a lot of YouTube and a lot of commentary there, and I've written down everything in the script, except what I, you know, listened on YouTube, so this is going to be a bit of a rambling for a moment, but if you think about it, weapons specialists who uh, have recognized the guy's gun, who state that in the photos that we've seen, well, how the hell do you carry around 150 rounds of ammunition by yourself at school, which is what they try to tell everyone. And the fact that by the shots fired and by the fact that we know what gun he had, he would have to fully reload his shotgun in under five seconds. Problem is, this guy had just turned 18, like two months ago, and the first thing he ever did was uh, get a license for his shotgun. Now think about it. If you turn 18, you start working for your driver's license, and the first thing you do is try to drive up a shotgun. So, I don't know where he got the training. I don't know what happened, because it seems highly unlikely that an 18-year-old could just do it so meticulously. But that's just a theory, obviously, and it's not proven, so, well, let's not dwell on that. What, what gives more suspicion is that one of the first things the Russian authorities did was to find an administrative fine uh, towards the parents of the shooter. And it would be kind of silly, because he's 18 and he's responsible for himself. However, they did find the parents for neglecting their kid and for, like, you know, raising him bad or something. Um, it's, I don't know the precise term, but essentially it's neglect of uh, taking care of a child. And that might seem rash, but uh, they were fined 500 rubles, which is about, like, 6 euros or something. Maybe 7 dollars or so. This is just dumb. I mean, if you want to punish the parents, then do it properly. Have a full court or something, but uh, fining them for 500 rubles is just so silly that why would these things happen? Secondly, the guy obviously was on social media, specifically on Vkontakte, which is the Russian kind of most mainstream social network. His account was deleted soon after, but obviously screenshots were made, and what have we learned so far is that he was, well, three things. He was supremely aggressive in his posts. He was what you would call a complete radical. And he was a radical Putin supporter, posting Putin's pictures looking like a czar. He was a huge fan of Novorossiya, which is like the Donetsk and Lugansk separatists. And he was a fucking um, nascent, totally uh, fanatical anti-fascist. 
Yeah, well, I don't know. If you guys in the West complain about your Antifa doing crazy things, then this is how it's tied there, because Antifa are totally tied to Putin and, and all these weird terroristic movements here in Eastern Europe. Why did he shoot all those people? I don't know. The motivation is still unclear because he killed himself. It is so strange, because honestly, pro-Putin, pro-Donbass Antifa, who just went out on a murder spree. And that's the political thing. That's kind of someone who's obviously has bought into all this propaganda and with severe mental issues. And this is just crazy. If you think about it, this is a supremely tragical incident, and I, I don't want to degrade the suffering of the people by joining into their mourning, because something happening like that in Crimea and Eastern Europe, that's very new for us, and it's, it's an extreme tragedy. But there are political implications for this whole situation. Well, some people are not just content with just mourning for the dead and dealing with the truth. There are other narratives in this scenario that uh, I feel compelled to talk about. Hey everyone, Annette here. I hope as always that you're enjoying our show. As some of you may have already seen on our social media, the Eastern Border now has a new look thanks to the talented artist Elena Braslinja. We also have new posters, t-shirts and other merch coming out. Soon they will be available on our website theeasternborder.lv but if you can't wait, you can pre-order our stuff by sending us an email and then making a PayPal payment. If you buy prints, then Kristaps will sign every last one of those personally. Don't forget about the Harvard lecture coming up in early November. And as always, leave us your thoughts and comments on Twitter at Eastern underscore Border and on our Facebook page. See you online. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. See, you'd normally expect people to just deal with their tragedies and stuff in a peaceful way and just be respectful. However, in Putin's Russia, because, you know, all Russian normal people are mourning and it just calls for a human reaction, this is something new to us all. But uh, Kremlin decided to use this horror show, first of all, to show to everyone that Crimea is ours message, although it's obviously covered in blood. See, the Russian Foreign Ministry rushed to announce that in the follow-up to the tragedy, Russia received words of support from, quote, foreign partners and leaders of foreign countries, end quote. And they uh, plan on using this uh, to have a long-awaited moment of recognition of the Russian annexation of Crimea. Crimea might be a difficult issue, but I definitely think that what happened there in 2014 was totally unfair. First of all, Russian President Vladimir Putin immediately expressed condolences after the incident and severely sympathized that, uh, quote, <clears throat> in Russia, in the city of Kerch, a tragic event occurred. 
And interestingly enough, when you spoke about Zinaya Vishnya, which prompted me to do the terrorist bombings episode, and every other case where something terrible happens in Russia, basically when the accidents occur and high-profile crimes are committed in Russian cities, Putin does not speak where they happened. Putin ignores that because it's bad to show that thing. Here, the fact that it's in Kerch is important, and this kind of allows him to strengthen the hold of this whole situation, because what do you do? That's one of the reasons why a lot of oppositionaries think that Putin might have had some involvement here, because it is in the end beneficial to him. Strange, if you think about it, but a bit sad and not unbelievable at all. Further on, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Issy, who was standing next to Putin at the moment, also expressed condolences and did not argue about the territorial issues. This is not surprising, since Russian-Egyptian negotiations, in fact, did not cover the matter. Moreover, the fact remains that Egypt never recognized the Crimea occupation. Secondly, the TASS state news agency reported that Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic, at a meeting with the Russian Prosecutor General in Belgrade, expressed his condolences, adding that the crime had been committed precisely in Russia. Quote, just three minutes ago, I received information about what happened in Russia in Kerch. However, the statement can't be found either in the Serbian media, which I scoured through a lot, or in Vucic's Twitter, or in the press service report. Although in fairness, it should be noted that the head of the Serbian Ministry of Defense sent a telegram with condolences to his counterpart from the Russian Federation, Mr. Shoigu. Obviously, not all Serbian officials understand that if they question the issue of Crimea belonging to Ukraine, well then, for them, Kosovo is not Serbia either, which is an important thing and a sticking point. Later in Russia, the president of Ukraine was ostracized when he dared to say that it was the citizens of Ukraine who were killed in this occupied part. So, just the fact that it happened in the Crimea already puts the political tensions up to infinity. It is a crazy thing to happen, and everyone will just try to drag their feet about this, and everyone will just try to use it for themselves. Meanwhile, the presidents of the Commonwealth and the States countries, like Belarus and Kazakhstan, they didn't focus on this at all. Let's again read all the reports here. And their words of support were addressed primarily to the families of victims of the, uh, and the injured, which uh, I truly understand, and this makes total sense. The real Russian kind of a victory and how they abused this crisis was the message of the press service of the German government. The condolences from Angela Merkel, yeah, they really did not mention the fact that Crimea is Ukraine, on which, really, some Russian media were putting all of their focus. But that's not all. The biggest disappointment of uh, Russian propaganda and professional instigators of hatred towards Ukraine was the fact that the crime was not a terrorist act and that it was committed not by some NATO-trained ruthless Ukrainian saboteurs on the orders of the White House. It turns out that nobody really left Yarosh business cards in the bomb hit college with the guns. Also, it's important to mention here is that, obviously, this pro-Putin, pro-Novorossiya shooter guy regularly watched Russian TV, it's very plausible, where, obviously, the talking heads out there who call themselves journalists and put my profession to shame, and I damn you, Kisilyov and Solovyov, to eternal suffering and, and hell where the people who speak in theater lives. But yeah, basically, they constantly speak about various Ukrainian crimes. Besides, as soon as the first reports came about the incident in Kerch, Russian television, and I watched that, immediately began to beat the war drums once again, talking about Ukrainian saboteurs and terrorists. Because for Russian realities, it doesn't matter that such precedents are fiction, because, you know, the only real thing of these fantasies is that citizens of Ukraine like Oleksensov, Viktor Panov, or Vladimir Balov, who are actually journalists, yeah, those guys can't even fake charges. Therefore, it's not surprising that Russian collaborator and currently the speaker of the 
Parliament of the Occupied Crimea, Vladimir Konstantinov, claimed that the crime was obviously the first point. He claimed that the crime had Ukrainian traces. And that's where they failed. There came a fiasco. See, the investigative committee of Russia ruined everything by requalifying the case from a terrorist attack to mass murder. I mean, if you think about it, such a great news piece had broken apart and failed to create another pretext for, you know, unfolding more stages of Russia's war against Ukraine. One of the experts, so-called experts, if I dare add, loyal to Kremlin, had expressed his attitude to what happened very frankly. Quote, If it's not a terrorist attack of Banderites, nor a terrorist attack of an Islamic State, then the retaliatory strike is not necessary. Then there will not be a big new war. Hmm. Have fun, kids. This is what happens when you have mass shootings. Everyone just turns them political and uses them to their own ends. That disgusts me the most. And by the way, in fact, it turns out that it's the occupation authorities who are to blame for the tragedy in Kerchus. Honestly, they gladly engage in creating fiction horror stories about the threat coming from Ukraine, while remaining absolutely irresponsible towards the occupied territory. There have been, like, news about factories shutting down, they have no water, and Crimea is just dying, and nothing's being done. This is stupid. And by the way, all this failure, the fact that, yeah, this actually might be this lone shooter with maybe some pals, but I'm not sure if this is even going to get investigated, just this Beslan tragedy. This is just crazy. All the situation that Putin tried to use it, failed at it, yeah, all this stuff, at least in my mind, means that the massacre will soon be forgotten and blocked by some other breaking news. Indeed, they'll, they'll most likely state that in Russia and the occupied Crimea, everything is stable. They have Putin and the, mm, cultural ties. Ah, kulturny skrepe. Awesome. It's once again better for everyone on the Putin side of the team to turn on the international panorama mode and just search for flaws in other countries. Which they, well, obviously have done, because another big news hit about the Orthodox Church. And trust me, trust me, these things are tied together. It all makes sense in the end. Well, just as my regular episodes, I hope, do. So, time to discuss the new split in the Orthodox Church. See, the Russian Orthodox Church has suspended Eucharistic communion with the Patriarchate of Constantinople. The decision was made at a meeting of the Holy Synod of the Russian Orthodox Church on October 15th in Minsk. The stated reason for the suspension is the, quote, anti-canonical actions of the Constantinople Patriarchate, which opened communication channels to schismatics in Ukraine and thereby encroached on the Russian Orthodox Church canonical territory. It all happens about this Thomas thing, which I spoke about uh, in my previous episodes, I think, about this fact that in Orthodox Church and how it all works, you have to have a Thomas to be a part of the whole orthodoxy in the world. And this autocephaly question has been super, super important to everyone around these parts. See, technically speaking, the Constantinople Patriarchate is the, quote, first among equals among the heads of the several autocephalous churches that make up the Eastern Orthodox Church. The official title of the Patriarch Bartholomew is, quote, Archbishop of Constantinople and Ecumenical Patriarch. Sergei Chaplin, a church publicist and the former executive editor of Moscow Patriarchate magazine, told my sources here in Medusa and in Lentaru as well, by the way, that all Orthodox churches recognize the primacy of the Constantinople Patriarchate, including his right to overrule decisions by the heads of other local churches and to grant independence to new branches. The only serious competition and appeals not to recognize Constantinople's special status come from Moscow. Well, what do you want? There's Gunjayev there, and, you know, there are no such thing as ex-KGB officers who, like, own yachts and Rolex watches. 
Breaking Eucharist communion is nearly the last resort in interchurch relations. You have to understand that thing, because people take this super seriously. And this is just another kind of this cultural issue that I have with this crazy regime. See, this split means that Russian Orthodox Church clergy will no longer be able to worship or perform ceremonies together with the hierarchs and clerics of the Constantinople Patriarchate. Russian Orthodox Christians will no longer be able to take communion or participate in other sacraments at the churches within the Constantinople Patriarch's jurisdiction. When Eucharist communion is suspended, the patriarchs from the quarreling churches typically stop mentioning each other in prayers, though the Russian Orthodox Church implemented this measure before the final split. Patriarch Kirill already hasn't mentioned Patriarch Bartholomew for a month, as, you know, <laughs> memorial prayer at Russian Orthodox Churches has started with Eastern Orthodox Patriarch of Alexandria and on All Africa Theodore II. The Russian Orthodox Church has drafted a list for tourists of all the churches where they can no longer pray. Moscow Patriarchate spokesman Archpriest Igor Yakchimchuk has noted that Constantinople Patriarchate churches are located in part in Istanbul, Antalya, Crete, and on Rhodes. Yakimchuk also said that clergy will face disciplinary punishment for failing to observe these new prohibitions, and lay people will be asked to confess and repent for disobeying the Moscow Church. The Russian Orthodox Church also states that Mount Athos, which is a supremely sacred place for Orthodox believers, and frankly, I'm a Lutheran, but even I would like to spend a month on vacation on Mount Athos, because that place would just allow me to purge myself from the world and, and, and um, as a Christian, just enjoy this simple living, because I don't care that they're Orthodox, frankly. Hey, if you're a good Christian, you should respect every other confession. But yeah. This thing, priest, um, he has pointed out that Mount Athos is technically, by the way, in the Moscow Patriarchal jurisdiction, quote, with all the same consequences. Mount Athos is, by the way, if you didn't know what that is, it's a self-governing territory within Greece that includes 20 monasteries. The mountain is one of the holiest shrines in Christian Orthodoxy, which many pilgrims, including Christians from Russia, try to reach every year. The region is also a popular place for pilgrimages by Russian politicians, bureaucrats, and business people. Vladimir Putin has also visited twice, by the way, once in 2005 and again in 2016. The Russian Orthodox Church has won support from the Belarusian Orthodox Church and the Moscow-dependent Ukrainian Orthodox Church, because there are multiple ones there, and let's not get into their proper names. A spokesman for the church said that Metropolitan Onifuri, the guy who did this, the current head of Moscow Patriarchate's Ukrainian Orthodox Church, quote, that we participated today in the meeting from start to finish and, like all members of the Synod, supported its decision. And its decision to align with the Belarusian Orthodox Church. In response, the Kiev Patriarchate Ukrainian Orthodox Church called the Russian Orthodox Church's move, quote, self-isolation in retaliation for legal decisions by the world community. And people are making a huge fuss out of the situation, but this isn't the first time the Russian Orthodox Church has suspended relations with the Constantinople Patriarchate. In February 1999, the same patriarch, Bartholomew, serving now, announced that the Constantinople Patriarchate was aiding the Estonian, yeah, my pals at Estonian there, they were aiding the Estonian Orthodox Church to its jurisdiction. Three days later, the Russian Orthodox Church suspended Eucharistic communion with the Constantinople Patriarchate, but ties were re-established after a few months when everything was restored. Today, there are two Estonian Orthodox Churches, one controlled from Constantinople and the other one from Moscow. But yeah, all this all this happens with a conflict just entirely to Ukraine. The biggest canonical Orthodox Church in Ukraine is still the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. The other two major Orthodox Churches, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate and the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church are independent, unrecognized by the Patriarchate and non-canonical. After the Maidan Revolution, 
In 2014 and the war in eastern Ukraine, officials in Kiev started talking more about actively creating the new canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And again, we have like three of those by now. That would be autocephalous. The Constantinople Patriarchate then agreed to grant autocephaly to the new church, which will be created on the foundation of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate, the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church, and the joint parishes of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. Yes, the names are long and the names are terrible, but when you're speaking about four different Ukrainian Orthodox churches... Uh, yeah... And by the way, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Moscow Patriarchate, uh, yeah, those guys categorically oppose this initiative because, you know, they don't want to lose their influence in Ukraine. So, well, obviously. This whole situation is super important because Mr. Gunjayev basically went there and uh, there's a video recording and transcripts from this conversation with um, the Patriarch of Constantinople, Bartholomew. In the conversation, Gunjayev uh, manages to state that obviously this whole schism comes from the fact that um, there are nine American bases in Ukraine who are now producing um, mosquitoes, and I shit you not, this is actually in the transcript, who are now producing mosquitoes of a special kind that when they bite people, they cause schismatism and wanting to split off from the church and uh, believers. Yes, that is actually what he said, among many other things, which are all very, well, crazy. Especially seeing that in the past, Mr. Gundyayev, who owns a bunch of luxury yachts and, and Rolex watches and is one of the more corrupt church leaders in the world, yeah, you know, he's also stated that, quote, every revolution and every trouble for every person ever comes from the fact that they want to live better. Abandon this idea and you will not get lost. And that's a popular thing in uh, modern-day mainstream kind of Russian politic politics in a way, because there are other things brewing, which again tie into this, but this whole schism thing makes it kind of sound weird. Especially since finding out that the Russian Thomas for the church, and Thomas is the autocephalus thing, turns out, well, it was given to Kievan Rus, not Moscow, but I will delve into the history of orthodoxy a bit later on. But now I have to put, like, the final piece into this whole puzzle. See, and now we've come to the part where I tell you that how this all ties together. Remember that when the shooting happened, and when the Constantinople uh, Moscow schism happened, by this point you have to understand that Russia is in the West, and tie some things together. See, in a long think piece published on October the 9th, which is before that, slightly before these other things, in the Rasiske Gazeta, Russia's official newspaper of record, by the way, Constitutional Court Chairman Valery Zorkin argued passionately for, quote, drastic reforms of the country's constitution. Because, obviously, you know, Putin has run out of his terms, so something needs to be done here that would allow him to run once again. We don't want another Medvedev period, don't we? So, yeah, Zorkin's article is a mixed bag. He's criticizing Russia's current constitution for having too few checks and balances and insufficient clarity in division of powers between the presidency and government, while also warring against, quote, outmoded liberal models of democracy and, quote, the risks and costs of globalization. What follows, which I'm going to tell you, is a paraphrased retelling Zorkin's text, quote, The constitution has some imperfections, but they can be eliminated surgically. Russians are tired of reforms, injustice, and poverty. There is no way to live in dignity. There was privatization in the 90s, and now millions of people are losing their jobs to computerization, plus there's pension reform and corruption. The constitutional court protects Russian citizens. One party of one group shouldn't be allowed to monopolize power, and the most effective system is a two-party government like in the United States. Instead of the outmoded liberal model of democracy, Russia needs a more effective model of popular rule. People 
want to defend traditional values against globalization. The European Court of Human Rights is increasingly divorced from reality, imposing its position on countries and forcing people to defend themselves. Minority rights can be protected to the extent that the majority consents. The country needs, apparently, to unite economic and political competition with the collectivism inherent in the Russian people. Otherwise, the Russian well, the nation faces another stagnation. But we all know what that means, right? I mean, you can put it in nicer words and nicer things, but honestly, well, if you rewrite the Constitution, then, uh, well, obviously, then Putin gets to rule for more. The thing is, why did I mention Belarus and Belarus Orthodox Church? Because they have been in the State of the Union situation since the 90s, and right now, Russian media is, like, slowly starting to wake up that, yeah, you know, if we form a unified country with Belarus, and we are a different country, that means we can rewrite the Constitution, and that's technically a different country, so that's why Putin can, like, stay in more power, so to speak. Which is fun already. And... To tie this whole thing completely together, if you remember from action episodes when I spoke about hacking our Fripe or Drauge Malve site in Latvia on Cyber Election Day on October the 6th, I spoke about it in our election follow-up show, the country was actually subjected to and successfully repulsed a wider cyber attack, which um, an investigative show from Latvia de facto reports. The popular Draugim social networking site was briefly hacked and pro-Russian messages posted, though no user data was compromised. But still, at that same time, a larger and sophisticated cyber assault was underway at the same time with the government institutions and important internet services targeted, including the infrastructure of the Central Election Commission, which was conducting the election. However, the attack was unsuccessful and reportedly had no impact on the election. The attempt was quite intensive and lasted into the middle of the next day, Varis Tevans, deputy director of the CERT LV, National Cyber Security Agency, told the investigative journalists. It started the day before election. The source of the attack, and whether it might have come from a state-backed group, has not been established, but according to Tavans, those behind it showed high levels of technical knowledge and were certainly not amateurs. This also happened here. So, I'm not saying that weird things are happening around Russia, and that, you know, you should blame the Russian government for everything terrible happening at all the time, but all of this put together is certainly suspicious, especially when according to Belarus and kind of possible new state and everything. I'd be worried. I'd be really worried, and I am. I want to end with what we started here, because my condolences go out to the people of Kerch, to the people and the families of those who died there. That's a terrible, monstrous tragedy. But with all this that has happened lately, which is why I just had to make this political show here, is, is the reason that people who are in power often like to use tragedies for great effects. You know, we, we might think they caused them, they might have, they might haven't, but since... Teddy Roosevelt and the, the main debacle which caused the Spanish-American War, again, and this I learned from Dan Carlin, by the way, yeah, no crisis goes unused. And that's the most terrible thing about modern politicians this day, because I do believe that there should be some really serious political responsibility. Interesting times that we truly live in. Next time's going to be either Stalin or an interview, but... Well, I just really like that some of you guys are super interested in these contemporary episodes... So thank you for that, and um, we'll see where this goes. I really hope it goes no further. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. 
could reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.